if you can do someone in your team's job better than they can, you, you haven't got the right talent because there'll be somebody in the market who definitely can be, I'll give you an example, who could definitely be a better HR director than you. So um, the idea, you know, when you're the senior person that you ought to be the best at everybody's jobs because you're the most senior is wholly wrong. From Positive Momentum, this is Meet the CEO, a show that takes you behind the scenes of the working lives of people who've reached what some might call the pinnacle of the career ladder. I'm Matt Crabtree, the founder of Positive Momentum, and on today's show, we meet Alison Britton, CEO of Whitbread PLC, a leading hospitality business and the owner of Premier Inn, the UK's biggest hotel brand. With a storied history that dates all the way back to 1742, today Whitbread operates more than 880 hotels across the UK and Germany, employing more than 35,000 passionate hospitality professionals, providing both comfy accommodation and food and beverage from some of the UK's most loved brands, including Beefeater and Brewers Fair. Now, Alison's career leads like a who's who of businesses and includes former executive positions at Lloyds Bank, Santander and Barclays, as well as current non-executive positions with Experian, British Airways and the Prince's Trust. Not to mention Businesswoman of the Year in 2017 and the award of a CBE in the 2019 New Year's Honours List. As you're going to hear, Alison recently announced her retirement from Whitbread and the life of a CEO, so I was really glad that she agreed to this very rare interview she's someone I've always admired very greatly and I really wanted to introduce to you all. I started out as we always do on Meet the CEO by asking Alison why she became a CEO. Good question, uh, Matt. And I'm not sure there's a a simple or easy answer to that um, because I certainly didn't start out in life with an aspiration to, to be a CEO. Um, and even when I went into business, it, you know, uh, the, it, after a business degree and then went into business, I, I didn't ever have a, a, a vista or a, an objective or an aspiration or an ambition that in any way thought uh, that I would get to, to, to be a CEO. And, um, and you know, maybe actually uh, people should think about that because maybe people can be more aspirational uh, even in their early years about that being an achievement. But it wasn't for me. And I sort of journeyed my way through my career. Um, I I didn't for a long time think very much about my career in terms of planning. It was always my career was very important to me. Don't get me wrong. I I need to earn money and, and make a living. And that was important to me. And being good at what I did was really important to me as well. So I worked hard and I and I and I tried to get skills and experiences and, and I did all of that good stuff that people do, but without any particular end in sight or a particular goal in mind. And so um, it became, you know, I had great opportunities at the organisations I worked for. I worked with some wonderful people. I learned a lot and I, and it, and I just sort of rolled up the ladder in a, in a probably relatively slow and quiet way. And I, Again, if I look back at it seriously, I possibly could have gone up that ladder an awful lot faster had I been planned and organised and with a goal and aspiration to be, you know, to to take that top job. And I would say I I was in my job prior to being CEO at Lloyd's as a divisional head um, at Lloyd's. And I took that job and I still at that stage had no aspiration to be the CEO. 
So it was really, it, 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 it was only during that last role of four years and as I went through that role uh, that, that I started to think when I move on from here, perhaps my next job will be as the head of, and what I thought would be a financial services company, um, and because I'd done 28 years in financial services, so why would it not be? But And essentially, would I join as, a, as, the, as the chief exec of a smaller financial services company? And so, uh, you know, why did I become the CEO and why did I become the CEO at Whitbread? Well, because that opportunity came my way at a time when I was looking for a move and also was looking at that other option of CEO of a smaller, uh, a smaller financial services company. And uh, and you know when I went through the process and was offered the job, you know I leapt at it because by that stage I really had decided that would be an exciting uh, an exciting uh, agenda for me. And changing sectors at the same time was pretty hairy, but actually worked out brilliantly and perfectly. And again, so you know if you were thinking about people listening to this podcast, I think people shouldn't be scared of a sector change um, at all, particularly if it's to get broader and wider experience. Yeah, I mean, you're a real you're a real role model for that sector change, and I've you know been lucky enough to know you for a couple of decades, and I remember conversations we've had along the way about what's the next step, what's the next step, what's the next step, and you've always been. I think you've done it very naturally and organically. And could you have gone faster? Well, well, maybe, but maybe you wouldn't have ended up where you've ended up if you'd done that. It might have not been a sector change had that been a consequence and by the looks of things you know you've you've had and are having an enormous amount of fun despite the very considerable challenges of being a CEO of one of the world's biggest hospitality companies during COVID. We might talk about that in a minute I'm sure it'll come up again um the other the other thing I suppose if I'm thinking back hard a number of jobs I did felt a bit like being a chief exec at the time so, and that was even quite early on. For example, you'll remember, I think it's when we met Matt, I was the managing director of the small business division at Barclays. And that was a very vertically integrated business. It ran everything, you know, up to check, not up to, but not including check processing, but it ran quite a lot of other processing for small businesses like loan applications, et cetera, and all the way up through to relationship management and everything in between. And that felt, I mean, I look back on it, that was probably the closest to being a chief exec because you did have end-to-end management of the PL, but of course not in a public domain. Um, so you didn't have all of the aspects of being a chief exec in a public company about managing the external environment, the shareholders, the government, the communities, the stakeholders, uh, and that. But nonetheless, from a decision-making perspective, and I do think that is possibly what does appeal to people about being chief exec. People like making decisions. They like making things happen. They like directing change and uh, and and see the excitement in delivery uh, as well as setting direction. And that that I could do in some of the divisional roles that I did along the way. Yeah, it's almost a- acting as if you're in that role because the role afforded you the breadth to be able to do that. But I think you also decided to approach those roles in that way. So then, as you say, lots of other things to do as a CEO of a public company, but a lot of it you had been doing for, for years and years. It's a really interesting one. Now, um, talking about what you do and how you do it, um, one of the questions we love to ask is about what part of your day do you protect? It's a little bit sort of behind the curtain about what do you protect in your schedule? What has to happen in a in a day, a week, a month that kind of almost doesn't matter what other pressures there are? 
that's absolutely going to happen as a sort of working discipline. Uh, well, interestingly, um, there's no sacrosanct part of the day or week at all um, as a chief exec. So it, it, it is literally 24 hours by seven days a week and so uh, and so there are no moments i know you'll have lots of other people with different answers they'll say i always my gym session in the morning my reading time just before i go to bed you know my walk on this day because that clears my yeah. head i have yeah. none i have absolutely none so not a single day of the week not a single hour in that day and even sleep time often is not sacrosanct at all and not, neither are even holidays um, however, that that sort of makes it sound like I never stop working, and that's not true. I I I I have um, times which are really important to family, and I have two kids and, and, has, and a lovely husband, and so I contract with them in some ways. It sounds more formal than it is, so, so that when we have things that are important and we are doing things, I I will be absolutely present and I won't deviate from that. And that that serves us really well in terms of, you know, I might say, you know, this week I'm working really, really hard from Monday to Friday, but I am absolutely not working this weekend. And I don't and and I wouldn't. But but as I said, even on holidays, that is not always the case. When we went, we had a lovely family holiday to Peru um, a couple of years ago, and it was right in the middle of the Costa transaction. And so uh, I uh, had breakfast uh, with the family at 7 a.m. in the morning and we did all our touring in Peru, a fantastic day. We'd finished with dinner, a relatively early dinner. Uh, I would then be in bed by 8 p.m. and I would be up at 2 and I worked from 2 till 7 a.m. because the time difference meant that that was the time in London where we could do most of the work for the deal. And that really worked because I contracted with the family to be present on the holiday and yet I was actually still secretly uh, uh, secretly working. So, um, so, so that, that that's how I manage my life is is by making sure that what's really important to have time for the children and family is kept sacrosanct. But it doesn't mean it's any particular day, particular weekend, particular evening. It's it's just um, you know sort of a, an amalgam of things. Yeah, I think that's a really honest representation of actually many chief execs' realities. But the thing I can definitely attest to is that I know whenever we meet, we tend to meet, don't we, at the Dunst the Dunstable Beef Eater, very good mixed grill, by the way. Um, uh, and, and we, the halfway house, the halfway house, indeed, the halfway house. Um, and we tend to spend at least half our time together talking about family, if not more. And so you are, I can absolutely attest, one of the most family-focused CEOs that I know. But I think there's an honesty to how when something like the Costa transaction happens, it doesn't really matter where you are in the world, you've got to be able to find a way to balance it. But I also suspect that when you are with family, you're very present with family. Is that fair? That so is absolutely right. You, you have to commit. When, you, when you're in, it's better to have committed um, I mean, it's a bit of an old saying, quality time, but it, that is what it is. It, you know, you have to be, you can't be just sneaking off and looking at your phone all the time or checking your emails. That said, you can do, I mean, when the kids were younger, they always had homework on Sundays, always had homework, both of them. And they would sit at the kitchen table to do their homework. And I would sit at the kitchen table with them and I would do email and other work 
and I would be helping them with the homework if they needed help. But most of the time they didn't. They just needed to do it. And it was very collegiate. You know, there was a, the, the band of three would be at the table working together for a couple of hours on a Sunday. And nobody mind that's, that the kids didn't feel that I, I was uh, deprioritizing them for work. In fact, it's it, it, quite the reverse. The way that was choreographed meant we all felt we were in it together. So uh, lots, there are definitely ways around these things to, to make them work. And uh, but I think they, the, the only other thing I would say is, uh, and I do give this um, uh, advice to other new chief executives, is my chairman when I joined Whitbread insisted uh, that I should always make sure that I had a half day free in my diary every week. And so, and so my, and instructed my PA, my fantastic PA Janine, to do that. So she keeps half a day on Keep Clear. That his theory on that was that that would be used for thinking time, and you don't get any thinking time as a chief exec because you're really busy the whole time. Actually, what I find is um, is that it's used for emergencies. So if you, because your diary gets very stacked, if anything comes up that it is really uh, critical, you know that you can always give it a slot in this in this part of the diary that's been booked. So I would say out of a month, um, uh, uh, if you've got half a day each week, uh, two out of four times is used up with things that need to go in, but otherwise would displace other important activity. And and a couple of times a month, you get you know two or three hours where you can do things which are uh, not in the normal run of, of of running the company, and that's really useful. So, so for anybody who's in who's thinking about how to manage their diary and time and and needs a bit more time to think, just be disciplined about that, and have your PA if you if you're lucky enough to have a PA be disciplined for you. Um, it really does work. Yeah, that's really useful, and I think it's a it's a bit more honesty about because I think a lot of uh, senior executives have a slot of time that they preserve. But the truth, of course, is it's frequently used as buffer for, as you say, emergency situations. But it is a good reminder to have that placeholder because there's always something. There is. Always something. Every week there's something that, that needs to be done. So you, the key is you don't release it two weeks in advance. You only release yeah. it in the week in the week yeah. itself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that, of course, that 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 great PA. If you, as you say, if you're lucky enough to have somebody worth their weight in absolute gold, um, I think we've all got a good image of Sunday Sunday evenings uh, open plan working um, in the Britain household. That's a really great image. Um, let's talk. My third question is about about big challenges. Um, it feels a bit ridiculous to ask the CEO of a hospitality business that's just come through the pandemic what the biggest challenges have been for you of late. Is it is it that? Alison, what's the biggest challenge you've had as CEO, um, or are there others? Oh, the, the, well, there have been loads. There always are loads. But, of course, um, nobody would have anticipated, uh, you know, the, the position we found ourselves in in March 2020 um, and, and closing a business completely and utterly, cl- closing all of the doors and, and, and thinking about actually how you might reopen it. And, um, and so that undoubtedly, and then, you know, of course, over the course of the, the following two years, opening and closing it again, several di- different periods of time for different lengths of time. We actually got quite good at opening and closing the business, but there was no playbook for that. There were no, in, in a lot of things in life, be it, um, you know, acquisitions being, yeah, bids, 
activist investors, most tricky problems have been experienced somewhere before. And you can find an expert that you can draft in to help you who's done it before and has at least learned some of the lessons and can tell you about the pitfalls there might be and some of the things that you should and shouldn't do or try and avoid. In this case, there were no experts in in any of this and there was no playbook. And so, of course, uh, people were learning things from scratch and uh, and learning as we go. And, uh, you know, we we did learn a lot in it and a lot of things we learned during it. We will hopefully preserve for the future because because some of the things we learned were very good. Even though we would never want the experience again in this in the way that it, it came, uh, we definitely um, we definitely some good elements came out of it. Yes, I can. Um, I, well, I, we spoke often um, during the course of the pandemic, and uh, and and lots of it, of course, was you know played out very publicly, but. Uh, yeah, these things that there are no playbook for, I think everybody has discovered we need to be ready for things that there's no playbook for, which is quite a hard thing to be ready for, but nonetheless. Um, we do. I mean, yeah. We do a lot of risk planning in all businesses. We look at uh, horizon scanning and risk planning, and uh, as, as, you know, we may look at it in a different way, but the, but the really unimaginable, you're never going to really have planned for. I mean, some of the some of the things we learned about, uh, about it, it was you know, thinking longer term as well as in in the moment. And that is a really hard thing to do when you're in a crisis is have somebody uh, who 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 is still involved in managing the short term, but actually can step back a bit and think about what when this passes, what will be the outcome of it? And when this passes, how how might we either benefit from that or how would we need to respond and, and what else might happen? That really helped us. Um, uh, so, you know, we went from a position in the first year, the end of the first year of making a billion pound loss this year, just gone, we've broken even. So if you think about, you know, we're making a lot of profit, billion pound loss, we've come back to break even this year, will probably be our strongest year. I mean, we, we have a really enormous trajectory upwards back into, uh, we're trading, uh, when we issued our last trading statements of what is in the public domain, about 30% above pre-COVID levels. So, um, and part of that was the planning for what happens when we come out of this and how will we perform then. So uh, all the way through the, the pandemic, we, we thought in three stages. One was, how do we get through what we're in at the moment and what what is the team doing to, to manage that? Um, yeah, and then how do we restore the business when we're in restoration uh, phase? And and indeed, some of the decisions we were making about how to manage the crisis in the moment were also about how we restore it later. So a good example would be we, for good reasons for the local uh, for the economy and the and the nation, we opened forty hotels during lockdown for doctors and nurses and emergency people to stay in. Um, and we had volunteers because if you remember, people forget now how frightened everybody was of the of the virus in the beginning because people were dying, and quite young people and fit people were dying. So uh, we had volunteers staffing those units. Um, which we did because we thought that was the right thing to do to support the nation. But actually what it gave us was was a lot of experience in how to manage reopening the sites and trading safely, which then stood us in really good stead for the next two years of trading in and out of COVID bounce and making sure we were properly sanitised and staff and customers were protected in the best way. So some of the things then sort of worked out for the, even though they weren't designed for that, for the good. But the third strand is we always had people thinking, usually me and, and the finance director, thinking about the uh, what, how we would create value in the long term. 
And so as well as, you know, this too will pass, we will be strong enough to survive it. Then how would, how do we thrive post the, uh, post the, the period? And so, um, you know, it's a good way of thinking about a crisis. Yeah, I mean, it seems you, you really are thriving. I hope by the time we release this podcast, the share price has reacted accordingly, but that's probably an entirely different subject of its own. Uh, also, what, what your organisation did to support the nation during COVID and your, you know, thousands of staff, brave staff did things and, you know, stepped up to support the nation. It was really amazing, really something to be, to. I know you were hugely proud and quite rightly. Um let me ask you my fourth question, which is about people you've worked with, who's most influenced you? You know, you've worked over the 20 years I've known you with a fascinating range of both, uh, you know, well, some well-known leaders, some who are less well-known. Um, who, who's most influenced you, Alison? Actually, this is an enormously difficult question to answer. I, I once added up, it was a couple of years ago now, so there won't have been too much change. I, I, I wrote down all the bosses I'd had uh, in my career because uh, uh, for, for a specific reason, which I needn't go into. And I'd had about 30 bosses in my career. And, um, and I looked at all the names. In fact, at some stages of my career, I had three bosses at once. I had three report lines into three different people. Very difficult to manage. But um, I looked down at those names, and they were definitely the good, the bad, and the ugly. <laughs> there was definitely um, a real mixed bunch in there of people who were absolutely awesomely brilliant and inspirational, and those, and those much less so. Um, on, the, on that list, though, there were three women. So in my in my entire career, I have only had three women bosses. And interestingly, they were all they were all incredibly different from each other. Uh, very different indeed in personality and in capability and in field that they worked in. Um, and they were all amazingly inspirational in their own way. Um, they they were three of people out of the list. They weren't alone. There were other that some of my male bosses were equally so, but very candid um, and thoughtful in their advice. Um, for me, you know, real role models. I wouldn't have said that when I was working for them at the time, but when I look back in hindsight, enormous role models to see women of that seniority, um, you know, performing brilliantly. And of course, they were quite brilliant. So, so I, I, I think they they will have had quite a, a, a an impact on me. But I've had others, um, I, and when I look down at the list, I realised actually I had learned a lot from people who were not very good leaders. And, I, I, you know, so even at the bottom of the pile, I looked at some of the names and I, I smiled wryly and thought back to the experiences. And there were some of them were terrible, terrible leaders. And I learned how not to do things. And sometimes watch, you know, reminding yourself in the moment, I am never going to do this. I'm not going to, you know, be this sort of leader is as inspirational as, and that is a really great leader. And I'm going to try and emulate some of the things that they do in the way that I behave. So I think your combination is, is what shapes you as a leader. I suspect that anybody who's ever managed you um, and this might be listening to this podcast is now trying to work out where they are in the relative ranking and whether they, which which category that they fit into. But I, I mean, I completely agree with you. You learn masses from those leaders who perhaps are are, are a bit suboptimal. The fear is all, always I have is that they put people off leadership. That that's the thing that worries me. People who and particularly you know women and underrepresented groups. They put them off because they see a particular style and think, well, I, I, I can't do that. I don't want to do that. If that's what leadership is, count me out. 
and that 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 worries me a lot. Hopefully, it's declining a bit, but I still think it exists. Don't you? Yeah, it, it may be, but I mean, the one thing people should take is is there isn't a prescriptive form for good leadership. Um, it, it's all it's 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 down to individuals, and it's about the circumstances and businesses that they're operating in in the moment. And there are some good practices for leaders which anybody can pick up and use. But actually, you end up you know having to be. People often often say you know do you need to be authentic? Well, you need to be authentic because in the leadership position, you haven't got time to be anything else other than authentic. So so actually, you know people. People want to see the human side of you. They, they know that you're not perfect and you won't ever be perfect. Um, but but equally, they do want sane leaders. And I always think that sanity is a sort of base is a base product for us. Um, and, uh, and as I say, uh, you, you do you do come across all sorts, and you see really effective leaders who are not the same as each other. Therefore, there can't be one prescription for it. Because, you know, you see effective leaders who are introverts, effective leaders that are charismatic extroverts, all sorts of of characters. And if I I go back to my three uh, female bosses, um, and I'll I'll say who they were, Megan Richardson uh, at Barclays was the head of strategy and planning, um, very senior, working direct for the chief executive at the time. Um, uh, Deanna Oppenheimer, American West Coast uh, banker, had headed up retail in Barclays, and Anna Botin, um, who is uh, the Spanish head of the Santander, uh, who then came to run Santander UK, a hugely charismatic uh, and uh, amazing leader. They're not like each other particularly, and they don't have the same uh, the same personalities at all. But enormously inspirational leaders uh, that did a brilliant job in their own businesses, you know, and continue to do so in in uh, two or three cases. Yeah, absolutely. I, mean, I never knew Megan, but um, but Deanna and uh, and Anna, you know, are real legends of leadership, aren't they? The the legacy that they've left everywhere that they've led and continue to lead is is completely remarkable. I think you're absolutely right about there's no prescription given the number of books that are written on leadership. There can't be only one way, can there? Because good grief, there's about as many different uh, frameworks as it's possible to imagine. Um, uh, let's um, talk a little bit more broadly not just about people who've led you but people that you have led CEOs and I'm sure well I know that you spend a lot of your time thinking about the the executive team what's the right blend how do we optimize it secrets to building an effective executive Alison what what have you learned that you can share with our listeners to help that that critical lever in being able to sustain business performance um well I think um Again, it's not it's not hugely complicated. Um, you know, I, I always think as the as the leader, you're you're definitely um, the conductor of the orchestra. You're not you're not playing any one of the instruments. So you do need the people in the roles um, uh, below to be experts, to be to be better than you in the job. <laughs> so if you can do someone in your team's job better than they can, you, you haven't got the right talent because there'll be somebody in the market who definitely can be, I'll give you an example, who can definitely be a better HR director than you. So um, the idea, you know, when you're the senior person that you ought to be the best at everybody's jobs because you're the most senior is wholly wrong. You should be looking for people who, who in that core competence, whether it's the commercial agenda, the, the finance uh, director or the HR director, the, the people person, um, they, they should be, 
per, really good in their field and should be cutting edge and should be thought provoking and should be able to set the agenda for, for those areas of your business and to give you the best possible time uh, to go forward. I think diversity of thinking is very important because otherwise you know people do get themselves into a bind and there is group think and they and they don't see the bigger picture so having people that will provoke you on your team it, even when it's uncomfortable is really good so vive la difference as i, I would say on that um and um and the other thing is uh, funnily enough it is good to set a team up but you do want the team to work together well so I've worked with people in the past who've, who've preferred a hub and spoke arrangement where teams don't work very well with each other, but they are very loyal to the, to the individual leader. I, I don't find that particularly effective for the company. It might be effective for the leader for a period of time, but it isn't effective for long-term growth in the company. So you want your team to be appropriately challenging of each other, but not on a personal level, on a professional level, but equally able to get in the trenches together and work. And there was never a moment where that became more true than when we went into COVID, where there wasn't the playbook. And the fact that, you know, at that stage, I had a team of people I'd worked with for four or five years, who could actually probably finish each other's sentences on occasions was incredibly important. So sometimes longevity, once you have your team set, having them have some longevity and role so that they are committed to delivering over a longer period of time um, and, and that they, you know, they will reap the benefits or, or not of the decisions they make in the future um, is also really important at, at the senior level for sort of continuity, I think. Yeah, absolutely right. Absolutely right. The hub and spoke thing is is especially interesting because I'm not sure anybody, any CEO ever chooses that. If you said to them, here's a choice, you can, you know, you can sort of have a team that works well together or hub and spoke, oh, a team working well together, just a hub and spoke, terrible or fashioned. But actually, that's what they end up with because of the manner in which they behave. It's a choice of a CEO's, right, which is to be able to get experts, step back, allow the diversity of thought and the friction that might happen between people who've got expertise in relative areas that sometimes are not always rub up against each other a bit, but step back and not have to feel the need to keep on intervening. Because uh, that's how the hub and spoke thing happens, isn't it? It's just this constant. Yeah. So it's if you pit, you pit, if you pit people against each other it, because they're they're usually because they're being managed as as an individual uh, against a specific set of individual objectives, rather than setting them up to have group objectives where sharing best practice and working together gives you a better outcome for the whole business and therefore they are rewarded for that in some way and uh, that's that that's how you get the sort of group thinking behavior and it, you know encouraging senior people to always think as if they're the leader above them not think as if they're the manager of their smaller area um, because that's the way you know when you're thinking about capital allocation decisions for example you've either got people you know tearing themselves apart because they want every last pound of capital for their business or they think about the business overall and where the capital is best deployed and and they you know therefore you get a group of people who who are engaged and committed to a broad sensible plan that they're all they all know their part in but they're all equally rewarded in that in that regard very good very good thank you Alison penultimate question um uh what's the biggest change coming up on your horizon you've managed a whole pile of changes over the uh, last few years as we've already um discussed uh but what's the 
biggest change coming up on your horizon? Well, there's, there's two answers to this, Matt. One's personal and one's business. So, I thought there might be. Yeah, from, the, from a business perspective, um, it is the growth of our international business for Premier Inn. Um, we, we went into the COVID crisis with, with uh, you know, three or four hotels in Germany, which is our market of primary market uh, to, to launch in the, into Europe. And we came out of the crisis now with 41 hotels because we've managed to buy assets during the crisis because we were planning for and what would the, the, the long term look like. And we've got about another 40 in the pipeline. So we're, we're a really big business in Germany within the next two years. And we've got still got acquisition activity um, and organic growth going on simultaneously. So so actually that that's the big the big change. And, and you know, it would be nice to then broaden out into other parts of Northern Europe beyond Germany using that as the as the base to do so. So that's that's the big, the biggest change because when you go from a UK oriented hotel business to having an international part of your business that is really important for future, even though it's smaller, you can't allow it to be dwarfed by the bigger business because it is about where the next 20 years growth is going to come from. So that's corporately the biggest challenge and change. Uh, but personally, I've announced my uh, departure from Whitbread and uh, I'm retiring from full-time executive life. I'm not retiring from all work, but just from full-time uh, executive life. And that happens at the end of February next year. So I have about uh, six or seven months left uh, to finish everything that I'd hoped to finish at Whitbread before handing over to my successor, um, who is well known uh, to me and to the company because I, he was my first hire when I joined Whitbread, my first senior executive hire uh, was uh, was Dominic, who came to run Costa. He obviously left, good. he left us with the business when we sold Costa to Coca Cola, um, and he's now coming back home uh, to run Whitbread in uh, one side apart. So, um, so that's it, there's a nice symmetry to that, I think. Very exciting. How does it feel? How do these uh, as the as the months click down? How does it feel? Well, we've only just announced it, and so it hasn't started to click down yet. So, and there's a lot to do. So, I, I'm certainly delivering the half year financial results at the end of October. I'm I'm also delivering the January uh, results uh, because Dominic probably won't have arrived by then. So, it doesn't feel like I'm on any sort of downward uh, ski slope at this stage. But maybe ask me that again at Christmas, and uh, maybe I'll have a different perspective by then. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I uh, you know I was very very keen to um get you onto this podcast and i know you don't normally do these kinds of things so i'm especially um grateful for you doing them but i also think it's really interesting as you say there's a there's a symmetry to it but also making the decision as a ceo when you actually want to exit and clearly you want to still continue to be very productive and we're certain you will be fascinated to see what you uh, range of things you end up doing but actually making that decision that the time is right for you personally, for your family, and maybe even for the business. It's very really hard. It's really hard. And it's particularly hard um, for me. This one was particularly hard for me because I'm still enjoying it so much. And I love, absolutely love the business. 
But I, by the time I go, I'll be in my eighth year. I'll have passed seven years and be in the eighth. And you know, there's all there, there is a moment you have to think about when when's the transition moment for a business. We're out of COVID. We're performing back to full strength. We've got uh, this growth agenda now pretty well set up, and that that seems like a really good time for the business to have a transition. Um, uh, uh, and and then for me, I'll just sort of fit behind that really in some respects. And you're right, I will. I have got another. Uh, uh, you know, a couple of things sort of in the pipeline to, to do, but they won't, the, 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 key, the key for me going forward will be variety rather than something in, in, in single form. But I don't want to be any less busy, particularly. Um, it, I'm just going to do work in a different way. Well, I think you've always had quite a bit of variety in what you've been You've you've uh, supported many other organisations, um, and so uh, with extra time, it's going to be it's going to be fascinating to see what you do. And uh, and we wish you, of course, the greatest of success. One last question. Uh, last question is: um, many people who listen to this podcast, we're told from feedback, are people who are thinking, "I think one day I might like to be a CEO. It might be on my path." If it is, what are the tips for aspiring CEOs? So somebody who thinks, I um, think, think it might be on my path in the future, what do you sort of almost wish you'd been told or maybe you were told earlier in your career that would have, would have prepared you even better for the CEO role? I suppose um, for those who are thinking about it and aspiring to it, I would start by saying, you know, much as I didn't have that in my head, you know, from an early age or even through through my career till the very end, it is achievable as an aspiration. So you so you should feel, you know, sort of empowered to think um, about how you might make that happen and and think actually, you know, you know, it is possible for people to do that if they if they're. Um, you know, good quality people that are able to think strategically and execute. Those are the sort of key criteria. I, I would think about continuing to learn. I, I think that that people who carry on and go on to the highest jobs and, and, and are successful for the longest in their career are people who stay curious and to continue to be really interested in learning new things and and aren't in the camp of, well, I've seen that before, I'm not the teacher, and are thinking always about what in the world, in the environment around me is changing and, and therefore how do I have to keep a pace with that? How do I have to keep um, uh, you know, understanding what's happening and what the future will look like? So that that would be number one. Number two is, is probably, uh, I'm not sure I've got three, but number two I'll go on to. Um, uh, that's more about um, thinking about how you, you work with a team and how you do get... A, good, a really good set of people around you and, and how that goes on through your organisation, even down to people who will ultimately deal with your customers and, and uh, other stakeholders, because they are the people who will actually be doing the delivery. Um, and you might take um, some or all of the credit for it, but the, but it's not your credit. Um, it, it is their credit. And so getting the right people, it's not always about, as we know with football, to use a football um, analogy, it's not always having the best strikers or the best um, goalie. It's about two people who can work together to both strike and, and goal and be part of a team. So it is about, it, it is thinking about how to make that happen because that, that will be the difference between your success and your failure as you go on. And the other thing is, is probably to, you know, for each time you get two things. One is breadth of experience is important for a CEO rather than um, a very tight depth. 
And so at some stage, if you are a, a very tightly defined uh, professional in a very tightly defined area, you might want to look at all the ways you can gain experience for breadth. It doesn't mean doing those jobs, but you have to find ways to make sure that you know what good looks like in technology, in people management, in financial management, as well as doing you know whatever it is that you do really well. And often when you're in more junior roles, you're you're you are employed for your spike for the thing you're really really good at and you have to find ways to sort of broaden out whilst not losing the edge that you've got on being really good at something but ultimately you end up if you're if you're running a company you have to know what good looks like like across a much broader spectrum so think about that and when you're thinking about learning and your continuous learning, how can you develop in those broader areas is probably the the, the, uh, the other piece of advice. You know, Alison, one of my abiding memories of working with you was was exemplified all three of those things. We, I, you don't even know if you ever remember it, but uh, way back in the past, we did a conference together for deputy branch managers at Santander in, when you were running retail. And I remember you asking me to do it and going, why is it deputy Branchman, like I get Branchman, why is it deputy Branchman? I remember you saying, well, because typically, you know, they don't come to these things. And so we're going to do something. We're going to make it specifically for them. And I remember all three of the things that you, you did. So first, there were loads of opportunities where you were asking them. I remember you walking around the room, asking them questions, not to prompt them to think about something, but because you were genuinely interested in what they thought about certain things that you were doing. I remember you talking about how they needed to work together as a team across their relative um, branches. And the most abiding part of it was that because you'd had breadth of experience, and I think I honestly, I don't want to be over flattering or sick of come off as a sycophant, but your relatability has always been your not so secret weapon, which is just, they just related to you because you just spoke to them in their own terms about what they were really facing, which was the genuine sharp end of the business. And that relatability, that ability to, you know, where you are now, to understand what it's like to have to make a bed when there's, you know, been a stag night in the Premier Inn the night before and clear up God only knows what. That relatability, I think, in part comes from a breadth of experience, but I think it also just comes from a, a kind of deep humanity that, that you've had as a CEO and a senior leader. And, it, and it's something very... It's been very. It's been a great privilege to watch you uh, operating that way, and I've personally, and I know many people are in the same category. I've learned tons from you, tons and tons from you. Well, that's that's very sweet of you to say, and uh, I mean, as you, you will know, given we've uh, we've known each other for a very long time, and in various guises and various companies, um, equally, um, I, I usually fond memories of watching you on stages, um, talking about you know the way that it, that you manage yourself and you manage your own uh, emotions through things, and and those lessons have stuck with me for a very long time. Bless you. Bless you. Well, listen, Alison, as I said, I know you don't do these things lightly and you do them only very occasionally. I'm super grateful. Thank you very much on behalf of everyone you've worked with um, and for. We wish you massive success um, in the years ahead. Can't wait to see um, what happens. But for now, thanks very much for being with us today. Thanks. Thanks, Matt. Well, how about that for a candid explanation of how a seasoned FTSE 100 CEO really goes about their role? 
I've always loved Alison's honest and pragmatic approach, and I've seen firsthand how that approach gets her followership all the way from the boardroom to frontline staff. From the truth about having no sacrosanct part of the day or week, to that contract with family and those Sunday evening co-working sessions, all the way through to how serving the nation during COVID actually helped the business to recover rapidly and be where it is today, trading at 30% above pre-COVID levels. The league table of 30 previous bosses was a real highlight, wasn't it? And the learnings that Alison got as much from those people who were less good as those who were brilliant. The depressing stat of only having had three female bosses was somewhat balanced with the credit she gave them each for being absolute role models. Also, the truth that there isn't one prescription for good leadership other than the base element of being sane is such a help, I hope, to those who might not always think of themselves in the classical leader stereotyped frame. Finally, the advice that breadth is just as important as depth for those who aspire to senior executive leadership is such an under-discussed topic in my view, and yet time and again we see that it correlates with sustainable success for organisations where their leaders have both that depth and breadth. Thanks so much to Alison, and of course, thanks to you for listening. If you're finding that these podcasts are helping you to broaden your perspective, then please tell others who might similarly appreciate it. If you're new to our show, welcome. Thanks for giving us a try. Why not go take a look at the back catalogue where you'll find an absolute smorgasbord of learning. Meantime, best wishes in all your endeavours and look forward to welcoming you to the next episode of Meet the CEO from Positive Momentum.